Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Remedial Studies. I am your host, Rachel, and I am joined, as always, by Hannah. Today is the long-awaited, I'm sure, continuation of our Remedial Read-Along series, where we are reading all of the books in Pratchett's Discworld series that has to do with uh, the Ankh-Mor Pork City Watch. Today, we are going to be talking about Jingo, which uh, is a book that had a lot to say, especially since we're recording this in an election week, which wasn't planned. No. Well, we planned the day, but not not this matchup. A happy accident. <laughs> a very happy accident, because I think actually being in that mindset made me think a bit deeper about the book. Mm-hmm. But it is, like most Terry Pratchett books, it's a lot. So much. <laughs> so much. My god. I always think they're very good. If any of you guys are friends with me on Goodreads, which I don't think anybody but Hannah is, I hand out five-star ratings like I'm Oprah and like I'm giving people new cars. But like, I mean it this time. (laughs) I save those for very special, like only the most specialist specialist life-changing books get five stars and that's something i have taken up recently i don't think i used to be so stingy i don't know what happened i'm just less generous of spirit now i guess but (laughs) maybe (laughs) maybe i'm too generous of spirit no i mean the ratings on goodreads are whatever anyway like they don't make any actual sense right maybe my thing is like i've seen people on goodreads go so hard oh yeah and like go in on people that i'm just like I'm gonna, like, buffer that. Yeah, no, I don't and get... And give you a good review. I don't get being, like, hypercritical of stuff on Goodreads. Like, I don't get it at all. It, it's basically just the Goodreads version of a comment section. Oh, so, yeah. Like... Yeah. I mean, like, it's more for my personal reference, right? right. Than, like, you shouldn't read this book because it's got XYZ wrong with it. Yeah, I think the only time I've ever done that, I have done that with one book on Goodreads. Some deserve it. And it remains my most liked review. (laughs) And it was, it was, oh God, it was, I don't want to put this author on blast because you can do whatever the fuck you want and it's your book, but also why. It was a book called, it was like Arsenic with Austin or something like that. Mm. And I hated it. Mm. I hated it. And it wasn't even that it was bad. I just hated the main character so much that it infected the rest of the book. Because <laughs> uh, there's nothing you can do when it's in first person and you hate the main character. Yeah, there's there's nothing to be done about that. I mean, Goodreads is weird anyway because they're doing a best of the best category for mm-hmm. um, the Goodreads Book Awards. And Sarah J. Maas, two of her Court of Thorns and Roses books are in there. And I'm just like, okay, guys, like, really, two of them are semifinalists for the best of the best. Uh, Okay. But, I mean, I did rate, I think, one of those books really high because my personal enjoyment of it was, like, I loved it. I, I was delighted. So, I can understand one, but both? I don't know. It just feels unnecessary at some point. <laughs> yeah. At some point. But to get back to the topic at hand, do you want to do the summary? I will try my very best. Okay. 
So, what happens at the start of this book is an island appears out of the middle of the ocean in between Ankhmore Pork and this country called Clatch. And an Ankhmore Pork fisherman discover it, and so does a Clatchian fisherman at, like, the exact same time, and they're fighting over it. Which is a prelude to the countries fighting over it, because both countries wanted, because it's strategically important, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, the things that people normally fight about when it comes to land and boundary lines and all of that political hoobity, gibbity, whatever. <laughs> so, uh, what happens is a clatch, uh, a clatchian diplomat, the prince's uh, little bro, is sent over to Ankhmore Pork to do diplomat things. And there's a procession that Vimes has to lead because he is the commander of the watch. And it's historically, he has to dress up in period clothing with, like, puffy pants, I imagine, and, like, garters and tights. And he's real irritated about it, but he wants to make his wife happy. And he's very tired because there's been a lot of unrest in the city over this whole clatch business and people's xenophobia is starting to show and Vimes has been running around and uh during the procession there's an assassination attempt on the prince and he's grievously injured and the watch has to investigate and at first um it looks like it's gonna be a very open and shut case there's a guy with a crossbow who's fallen to his death in the bottom of, uh, like, a tower. Colin and Nobby go to that to a room that he's leasing, and they find sand and glass on the outside and Clatchian money, and they it has been made to appear. Um, it, this is clear to the rest of the watch, but not to Nobby and Colin, <laughs> Mm -hmm. that uh, someone is trying to make it look like Clatch set up the assassination attempt because somebody wants to start a war with Clatch over this island, which is called, like, Leshp. Yes. And it's really weird, and it just appeared out of the middle of nowhere. So, of course, tensions start to escalate, and the Watch has, has figured out that somebody else is behind this, but they can't figure out necessarily who... It is. And meanwhile, uh, the nobles in the city decide to put together private military forces and prepare to go to Clatch. And there's a fire at the Clatchian embassy, and there's a lot of anti-Clatch sentiment, and people from Clatch are trying to leave because they can tell that things are not going to go their way, and they're still investigating this assassination attempt. There's a guy called 71 Hour... Ahmed. And he is like a real shady, shady dude. And like Vimes is trying to catch up with him and investigate him. And Angua changes into her wolf form and goes aboard the ship because it's much less conspicuous if she goes on the ship. But Ahmed was prepared and has like a silver collar, claps it on her, and she's like sick and can't do anything and is all fuddled up. And Carrot goes back and tells Vimes 
that Angela uh, is stuck on the ship, and uh, Vimes is now at a branching point, right? He can choose either to go tell Lord Rust, oh, and Vimes has lost his badge again, like, mid, this keeps happening. He keeps having to Yeah, resign. it's just a thing. Um, cause he gets into a fight with the lords over the military and the fact that they've, they've become a military state and have tempor- temporarily, I put that in quotation marks, kicked, uh, Veninari out because now that the city is in a state of war, the military has to be in charge. And these are like old rules that haven't been used in like a bajillion years and it's all very dumb and fine. throws a fit and he's made to resign. So he can go tell Lord Rust who is the idiot in charge now, or he can go and chase after the ship and deal with it himself. So he does, uh, and this forces a whole chain of events to occur. He basically forces the Ankh-Morpork armies to go after them because then a small force of watchmen going into the Clachian empire uninvited is an act of aggression so the rest of the military has to saddle up and go after them but there's a whole sequence where he finally one they save angua or she saves herself she saves herself and they just kind of happen to be there when she arrives i feel like and then vimes finds Ahmed, and it turns out that Ahmed is a policeman, and that's why he's so <laughs> shady. Um, and anyway, they end up confronting the Klatchian army, and they uh, surrender to the Klatchians, and there's, like, this diplomatic moment. And while all this has been going on, there's a whole separate subplot with Vetinari, uh, Leonard of Quirm, who's, like, Leonardo da Vinci, and Nobby and Colin, who have taken a submarine, <laughs> investigated underneath the island and found there's just a huge bubble of gas under there that's slowly leaking away. So you can guess what that means. Then they go to Clatch and dress up like they belong in Clatch and do and try to do spying so they can get intelligence reports. Uh, and Nobby dresses up as a woman. And, like, a bunch of gauzy, like, see-through stuff. But there's enough layers where you can't see through it. But maybe you could. And the thought of maybe seeing what's underneath all the veils terrifies everyone. To the point where they're like, I will pay you to keep your clothes on. Please do not do the dance of the seven veils. (laughs) Yes. And Nobby actually is the one who finds out where the troops are stationed. Because he dressed up as a woman gains the trust of the local women who know where the men are stationed because their boyfriends ran off to go play at war. They're kind of mad about it. And so mm-hmm. Vetinari, Nobby and Colin, and Leonard of Quirm, I don't know, Leonard doesn't really play a part in it. He must be waiting with the submarine. But they go and are basically like, okay, uh, as, they're sur- as Vimes is surrendering, Vetinari shows up and is like, okay, here is the conditions of our surrender. And everyone on the military side is furious. But what actually happens is a couple of days, because he signs over all the rights to Leshp, which is the island that they were going to have the war over. And so it's a non-issue, and they decide to sign the treaty on Leshp in a couple of weeks. And of course, by that time, Leshp has sunk back in the ocean, and it's a non-issue, and they don't have to give up anything 
because there is no island. And uh, at the very end of the book, Vimes gets promoted to Duke. <laughs> and he's very upset about it. <laughs> and then there's another procession. And this time Vimes interrupts the procession by chasing after a petty thief. The end. Very charming book, I felt. I also agree that it was very charming. And I liked the end in particular because there's this comment that Lord Rust makes who's the leader of the Ankh-Mor Pork army as we see it. Uh-huh. After Ventanari resigns, heavy air quotes, <laughs> where Vimes is standing up to him and he's just like, why, do you want me to go around and just arrest people for the crime of being Clatchian? Like, that's not a thing. Rust is like, basically says, you can't talk to me like that. You're just a thief taker. And then at the end, he actually does go chasing after a thief. <laughs> yeah though so i think isn't there that conversation that many crimes come down to theft whether or not you choose to conceive of them as theft? i feel like that's in this book yes it's just a matter of scale <laughs> yeah i think that's what a lot of crime is on the national scale is just theft but because it's it takes place on so big a scale and usually over so long of a period, it's not like somebody snatching somebody's purse in the street. It's less obvious. Even though that that is it is essentially the same thing at, at its basest components. Yeah, if we if we look at which way the cash is flowing in both crimes, it comes down to a very similar thing. But I think the biggest things in this book the biggest things that are really discussed I think at length are, like you said, the ideas of nationalism, mm -hmm. xenophobia. Yes. And there, there's a whole... It's not really a subplot. It's like a, like a parallel plot that we only really get little pieces of where um, when Vimes decides he's going to say, fuck it, if I'm a knight, then that means I can form my own regiment. So if you dissolve my police force... Guess what? We're an army regiment now. They're all under my control, and I'm gonna do... I'm gonna go to Clatch and handle this myself. But when he decides to do that, there's a mention in, in another universe. That Commander Vimes did not decide to do that. He decided to stay and just try to make... I think the phrase that's used is, like, to make the best of things. Mm. <laughs> and Vimes has this thing. He's had it for a couple books called a, a Disorganizer. That's a pocket watch with a little demon inside of it that's supposed to be, like, a personal assistant, but it's so sublimely unhelpful. Yes. Mostly because, well, sometimes because it's a demon, but also because Vimes refuses to learn how to use it. <laughs> but in this weird in-between history moment, the Vimes that we follow throughout the rest of the book picks up the pocket watch of the Vimes who stays in the city. And he keep and the watch keeps like setting him like little reminders of things. And at the very end of the book, when they're all in the prince's throne room, and Vimes is like, "Well, I'm going to arrest all of you for like preparing to breach the peace by being prepared for war," and like all this other stuff that's pretty that's pretty funny. But like the whole time, this watch is is basically like giving him like a blow by blow of what 
we gather is a Clatchy, a full force Clatchian invasion of Ankh-Morpork, mm. where everybody in the watch, including Vimes, dies horribly. Yeah, it's it's a real upsetting counterpoint to the current like plot line. You're like, what? That's what would have happened. Yeah, because at some point it's just kind of funny. For the beginning. It's like most things Terry Pratchett does. It's funny until it's not. <laughs> until it punches you in the stomach when you're not looking. <laughs> uh... No, like for real. And like I think Vimes reacts that way at some point because it's telling him like names of all these people who die. And I think the one person who dies before him is Carrot. Mm-hmm. And he like sees him later having this football game with these two armies. Yeah. <laughs> like in a callback to the very beginning of the book when he had... That was how we got the two gangs of kids to get along. Right. Where he's just like, there's this weird in-between moment where he's like, but he's dead, but he's not, and all this other stuff. To me, what I got out of that, and what I got out of a lot of what Vimes did throughout the book, is it's a commentary on what can happen when good people don't take action. Because Vimes, we've talked about this, I feel like, in another episode, because it really is his, like, primary character trait. He so desperately wants to be lazy and do the easy thing and all that kind of stuff. And, like, down to his DNA, he just can't. Yeah, he really... He just can't do it. He fundamentally cannot do it. <laughs> he just can't do it. He's, he's, he has to be the person who steps up. Because that's just who he is. Mm-hmm. And it gets him into trouble a lot. Yeah, and he causes a diplomatic incident because when the Clatchian embassy catches on fire, the guards won't let people help, and people also don't want to help. It's a big, mm-hmm. it's a big thing. But Vimes, like, runs into the building and, like, somehow manages to swing down from an upper floor into another floor very heroically and, like, throw a woman over his shoulder and break out. And, like, it's, it causes a diplomatic incident because he broke into the, he quote-unquote broke into the Clatching Embassy and kidnapped someone, even though that's not really what happened. <laughs> yeah, because there's that whole scene with Rust where he's trying to, like, take Vimes to task about it. And for most of the conversation, Vimes is just very confused. Yes. Because he's just like, this didn't happen when you're talking about it. And then he realizes the incident he's talking about. Mm-hmm. It's like, Vimes is, as a character, I feel like he's just teetering on the edge of exploding most <laughs> of the time. Yeah. That's where he gets real close. Because <laughs> Rust is like, well, why did you do this? And all this other stuff and he's like uh well it was on fire at the time sir because mm-hmm. he's vimes he can't just not do it right in another way i think we see through vimes primarily but through i think several other characters over the course of the book that xenophobia doesn't just have to do with war oh yeah because there there's a whole thing for the first act of the book where the violence against the Clatchian community in Ankh-Morpork is starting to escalate. And it really isn't until, like, Vimes has to essentially help a family that got a Molotov cocktail thrown through their window that he starts to realize, like, oh, shit, this is, like, a problem. And none of the Clatchian people are surprised by it, that this is a thing that is happening. They're just like, yep, sounds about right. 
there's a whole like moment he has where he's he's thinking about these people because they they it's like the curry place that's kind of by the watch house so they go there all the time and he's like i don't know what these people's names are like i don't know anything and then there's carrot who's just picked up Clatchian. that's yeah, what he always carrot says isn't it is oh you can just pick it up very, he's a very special boy so the way that the xenophobia is presented in the book is mainly in these conversations between either Colin and Nobby or between Vimes and the nobility proper. And there's this weird thing where Colin or the nobility will say one racist thing about the Clatchians and then partway through the conversation will say a contradictory racist thing of the first racist thing. Like, oh, you know, they're they're so lily-livered and cowardly. We'll just have to show up there with our weapons and they'll turn tail and run. And then later they're like, oh, they're so vicious. Mm -hmm. They're vicious fighters, just nasty beasts. And this is Colin. And Hubby is like, so they will viciously attack us while running away from our cold steel and Colin is like you're just trying to wind me up and yes. <laughs> yes I loved that moment because oh my god because guys if you've ever had an argument with a person who's that racist that is how those conversations go every fucking time is Someone will end up talking themselves into a circle and they'll be like, well, you're just trying to wind me up. It's like, no, you're just awful. You're just awful. That's all it is. <laughs> you're just racist. Yeah, oh my god. You're just racist. You're just racist. <laughs> that, that is a complete <laughs> sentence. There's no <laughs> and or but. It's just you're racist. We don't need any more conjunctions. No, that's, that's, a, that's a standalone clause right there. <laughs> I just I love those scenes though. They're so funny. It's like it's it's funny and it's not funny all at the same time cuz you're like I've seen this happen. I've watched this play out. I hear this not in such a short period of time maybe. Maybe maybe it's over a couple of weeks they say something one day and you're like please don't say that and then a couple of weeks later they say something again and you're like okay. Don't say that and also what? <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god. There was another moment to talk about the xenophobia because Vimes, even though he doesn't always actively combat it, it like it, it explicitly combat it, I think is maybe the phrase that I'm looking for. Vimes doesn't front and he's never been that kind of character. So there's a couple distinct moments where he kind of works against that kind of talk and one of them is with colon and it's actually not on the metaphorical screen it's when he when he hears colon call somebody a raghead because which is referencing the fact that people from clatch wear turbans the narration is like there's this moment where he pauses <laughs> and then he makes the decision to go back get colon is like you need to come to my office right now everyone in the watch is like oh it's like when someone got gets sent to the principal's office they're just like what are they talking about this whole conversation happens we don't hear any of it and we just hear like vimes leaves to go to the thing at the university and colon's like well i don't mind what people <laughs> of course you don't. <laughs> and it's just like of course that's what you get out of that after that he also stops using slurs so 
he does stop using slurs because I I would be terrified to know what Vimes would have told him. It's a testament to how powerful like those conversations can be when it comes from somebody who's kind of your age and more your peer than like to say if we were to talk to somebody like older and by older mm-hmm. I mean like 50s and up. It's perceived as coming from a different place. So there's Vimes who the whole conversation was probably like, I know we used to say those things. And it never was okay. We were just telling ourselves it was okay. But God damn it, Fred, it's really not okay now. I mean, you see a lot of that, I think, especially a lot of the language around how we talk about LGBTQ people has changed. Um, I think mm-hmm. even since we started college, we're just a lot more aware of it. And yeah. there's been some discussion in my professional circles about whether or not the use of the term, like, homosexuals is still okay. And, like, it does kind of have that weird, Mm -hmm. like, greasy feeling to it, right? Now, because of the way it was used by people who did not mean well for so long, I think that's a big part of it. But there are still places where people do use that term, to describe themselves mm-hmm. is, is what came out of that conversation. The country, especially one as large as ours, is not culturally homogenous. And mm-hmm. I think it can be irresponsible to, like, over-police, like, the way that people talk about themselves is what I would just want to say. Yeah, I, I agree. Because I, I think, especially as being LGBT publicly has become a bit more accepted even since we left high school not high school i'm sorry since we left college like younger and younger people are coming out which is a good thing but i i think there is and i think this is talked about often in like in queer spaces about how even the use of the word queer is still being argued about because it was a horrific slur and used as such for a very long time but like i know people who are on any one of the uh, LGBT spectrums who are like, I don't have another word for what I'm like. So I'm going to cling to this one until someone pries it from my cold dead hands. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really what I'm talking about. Like, I think we have a responsibility to kind of make sure other people aren't being gross and discriminatory Mm -hmm. and throwing around like slurs and stuff. But I don't ever want to, especially as a straight white woman, <laughs> ever tell people how they can talk about themselves. Yeah, I I think you're right. I think that really is the crux of it, is you can't responsibly police how people talk about themselves. Yeah. I know that's kind of a tangent, but I, I it's been on my mind lately because of the hashtag, mm-hmm. quote unquote, Tumblr discourse. <laughs> We need to go back to calling it wank. Yeah, we probably should. I really don't care if people want to get in into discourse. Like, sometimes I have an opinion. Most of the time, I am either don't care or I'm not informed enough to have an opinion. Mm. But sometimes I'm just like, guys, everybody is wrong. <laughs> or, or or you're both right. Or it's, That's the thing usually when I see those, like, big, long Discord posts. It's never just... One person who's really right and everyone else is wrong. It's usually everybody is degrees of right and wrong. Of course. That's... <laughs> as it is in real life. That's normally how that works. Yeah. I'm just like, guys, 
Can we not? But I also kind of disagree with the thinking that that's a Tumblr-only phenomenon. I think that's more of an internet discourse thing. Yeah, I'm just on Tumblr more than I'm on other No, I I am as well. That's where I see it. That's where I see it most. I just, I'm, I'm still that person that gets irrationally annoyed when people are like, ugh, Tumblr SJWs. And I'm just like, no. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so I think this book continues the trend of Terry Pratchett being too timely for his own oh, good. My oh my goodness. God. Because we just had an election and immigration did. It was, was such yesterday. a big deal for whatever reason. Yeah. And I think some of it, I think this is worth bringing up. I think some of how we, I saw this book, some of how I saw this book was colored by the fact, by two facts. One, Clatch is coded as Middle Eastern. Yes. And two, we are Americans. <laughs> yes. And we all know, we all know the history of American involvement in the Middle East. And it's ugly and gross and not a thing we like to visit, even though we should revisit it more. Because sometimes people are grossly misinformed. <sighs> but I, I think coming specifically from the background of the more modern american version of imperialism versus the british imperialism that it obviously still emulates Mm -hmm. where i think american imperialism like our version of that is the sequence of conflicts in the middle east it's the destabilization of governments in south america which we're still feeling the effects of today and all this other stuff where it's like that stuff is still so close and recognizable in media that it's almost like you you don't need to put it in a fantasy land for us to get it oh no (laughs) like like that's a thing that is happening now yeah um i think this really got to me in a way that it hadn't the first time i read it because obviously the political landscape has changed But also, in terms of our current events, we just sent military force down to the border because there's a quote-unquote migrant caravan. I think you mean a refugee caravan. I just... (laughs) Yeah, they're refugees. They're not migrants. (laughs) To, To turn them away. And I don't know. That just feels very hypocritical to me as an American... You know, you're in grade school and you hear about the Statue of Liberty and how, you know, we're supposed to take in the poor and the downtrodden. Yeah, and the huddled masses yearning to breathe free and all that other stuff. Yeah, you know, important, important stuff that I always felt was fundamental to America. And to see us act this way feels very hypocritical to me. And I think there's sort of echoes of this in the book because... Angamorepork is a city of immigrants, right? There's a ton of people. Like, sure, there's a lot of people who were born and lived their whole lives in Angamorepork, but you've got dwarves and trolls and stuff, you know, running around that have migrated to the city, and you've got uh, humans from elsewhere who've migrated to the city. And to basically throw out the Clatchians because of this weird tension with Clatch over an island that wasn't there a week ago. 
is also sort of hypocritical. Like, you'll eat their food, but you don't want them in your city. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a comment. I do not have the exact quote in front of me, but there is, there's a quote. I think it's Vimes is like inner monologue that he has all the time. Was talking about the whole idea of if you want to throw out every person who looks Clatchian in Ankhmore Pork, eventually you're going to be throwing out Ankhmore Pork citizens because people emigrated from Clatch, had children who were born in Ankhmore Pork. And the specific example he gives is like you'll see a kid who you think has camels written all over his face and he opens his mouth and he's got. It's like an Ankh-Morpork pork accent so thick you could walk on it. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's just like you can't, there's no way you can impose that standard. And I, and I think Vines is a good character to view that from because you know he'd be the one who would be, be told to enforce it. And he is. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why the watch is disbanded because he absolutely refuses to do anything Russ tells him to do. Right, and we're seeing that because we're deporting people that we shouldn't be that have a right to be here. Like, I've heard that. I don't know how true it is, and I hope that it's not, but I have heard that. Yeah, and, and I also think it's telling that even if it turns out to be exaggerated or not true, it's not unbelievable Mm -hmm. that that would happen and that makes me very sad first of all but it's also like with everything else happening in this country it's almost like that would be the next logical thing oh yes this is the next thing that's going to go wrong and and that is a very scary prospect Mm -hmm. there's a really good comment that actually Detritus makes, Sergeant Detritus, who is a troll and who is one of my favorite characters. I love him so much. But he has, he makes this like, like Vimes think it's, thinks it's just a noise, but it's like a word in troll. And it's just like a big long groan, like, Argh. It's the sound you make <laughs> when this happens. <laughs> yes. And Vimes is like, okay, what does that mean? And Detritus says it's like when you're hit in the head with a few pebbles and you know it's too late to move out of the way of the rock slide that really hit me weirdly enough like that whole Mm -hmm. conversation because it it's true that you don't see the avalanche first it's always just a couple of snowflakes or a couple of pebbles, or whatever you want, whatever analogy, whatever weather-based analogy analogy works for you. It always starts with the small things, and then the big things come later, and it's too late to get out of the way. And that's something, that whole concept of the proverbial slippery slope is something that is very present in all of our modern political conversations these days, Mm. on all sides depending on what you think is at the bottom of the slope. (laughs) It's just constantly very concerning to me that books that were published 20 years ago are, like, too relevant. Then the fact that we talked about this, I think, specifically when we talked about Men at Arms, we're still talking about the same problems, and the fact that we can talk about them in the same way... Yes. (laughs) ...potentially means that very little has changed. And I, I think... 
as, as defeatist as it kind of sounds, I do think very little has changed in the conversation about involvement in like military involvement in foreign conflicts. I do think very little things about those conversations have changed, especially in a post 9-11 world mm. where America is still acting the watchdog. For what? I'm not sure. I have very strong opinions about this, but it's 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 that whole thing that I, I think you called it hypocrisy, and I think that's the best word for it, is this whole thing of wanting to have your fingers in all the pies. But the second anybody does anything like that to you, then they're the bad guy. It's the whole thing. I think this might be a good time to bring up the one Vimes quote that has haunted me oh. low this week. About the us versus them. Yes, I bookmarked that too. <laughs> so Vimes is trying to figure out the attack on the shop. And if it was organized by the same people that tried to assassinate the prince. And if those people are the same people that tried to set fire to the embassy. And he's like trying to find this big conspiracy. And he says, and then he realized why he was thinking like this. It was because he wanted there to be conspirators. It was much better to imagine men in some smoky room somewhere, made mad and cynical by privilege and power, plotting over brandy. You had to cling to this sort of image, because if you didn't, then you might have to face the fact that bad things happened, because ordinary people, the kind who brushed the dog and told their children bedtime stories, were capable of then going out and doing horrible things to other people. It was so much easier to blame it on them. It was bleakly depressing to think that they were us. If it was them, then nothing was anyone's fault. If it was us, what did that make me? After all, I'm one of us. I must be. I've certainly never thought of myself as one of them. No one ever thinks of themselves as one of them. We're always one of us. It's them that do the bad things. This was on page, this was like halfway through, and I'm like, okay, uh, found the quote for the what the fuck Terry statement. <laughs> um, like, it's, Terry Pratchett has that horrible habit of just being very, you described it in such a great way in an episode, and I do not remember what it was, but it's the whole thing where he just completely and utterly roasts you within an inch of your life with some world truth. <laughs> yeah. And that was one of the moments in this book, because those ideas about us, them, me. Mm-hmm. Capitals. <laughs> all the capitals. And, like, how those things interweave, even though we don't want them to, and how you're always someone else's them. I think it's important to sit down once in a while and ask yourself, am I one of them? You know, like, am I allowing terrible things to happen to other people? Am I permitting this? I think that's important. And I wish more people would do that because once you have othered, I think that's a the fun word from sociology, right? Once you mm -hmm. have othered someone else, once you have excluded them from your community, it is much easier to treat them badly. Once they are not fully a person to you. So I think you have to sit yeah. down and make sure you're not doing that. 
problematic garbage, <laughs> you have to do some self-reflection once in a while. Yeah, because I, I think a good thing this book did is it showed the multiple scales of how those attitudes can become so ingrained in a society. And it's not always the people like Rust who are the violent, military, war-hungry people. It's not always the council who sits with Brandy and doesn't pay their taxes, which was another very funny sequence. And a lot of the time, it's it's just ordinary people who accept a stereotype or a straight-up lie about a group of people into their hearts. And eventually it just becomes what you believe. And if you believe it for long enough, you'll think it's the truth. Yeah. I think a lot of those things come out of of a fear, too. Mm-hmm. Like, you're afraid that something bad is going to happen to you because of other people. And I think some people use other people's fear as a tool. I mean, look at the current political moment and the way that people try to say that, you know, that certain groups of people are terrorists or certain groups of people, they're all criminals and... You know, they're going to attack your women, essentially. And it's just Mm -hmm. like, please stop playing to this card. Because I think when people are scared, they're stupid. I really do believe that. Yeah, I I agree. We did a whole... It was a really emotionally trying week. We did a whole week just about the rhetoric. Uh, In my my, uh, women's suffrage class, we talked about the rhetoric of, like, the first couple decades of Jim Crow in the South, which is where lynching got really bad. Not that it wasn't always bad, but it became so much more pervasive and so much more public in the first, like the last couple in the first, last couple decades of the 1800s and the first couple decades of the 1900s. And so much of that and so much of the, particularly the the anti-Black resentment in America in that time came from this fear of black male aggression and sexuality and how people were like trying to protect you didn't see the air quotes but i did them this like fragile white female stereotype that most white women of the time happily played into because it benefited Mm -hmm. them and like that got people killed Like, we know that. That is not an exaggeration. It got people killed. And that's something that Project doesn't shy away from in this book at all, is that, like, if Vimes and Carrot hadn't been there, that family might have died. Yeah. Like, if their house had caught on fire and all this other stuff. And it's the whole thing of, like, this is what happens when you do nothing, or in some cases, when you wait for the problem to come to you. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I think that's that's another thing that is important about Vimes's choice to go to to Clatch and do something is he's like, no, I'm not gonna wait. Essentially, he's not waiting for it to be his problem. Yes, because <laughs> that's a conversation, and I I I had this conversation with a person after the 2016 election that essentially boiled down to 
I'll worry about it when it's my problem. And the thing that doesn't work about that is a problem is still a problem, regardless of if it affects you or not. And you're ignoring the pebbles, right? Like, that's the thing. Exactly. You're yes. ignoring you the pebbles. You are ignoring the pebbles. And pretty soon, it's going to be too late to get out of the way. It's like there's that joke, right, where the woman who's voted for the Panthers eating people's faces off party gets her face eaten off, and she says, well, yeah, I Yeah, because she never think... thought her face would get eaten. Right. And it's just like, okay. All right. Yeah, that's... So many things are applicable to that. It's an extreme example, but I think the fact that we get to see or hear in some tangential way what could have happened, not just to Vimes and the Watch, but to everybody in Ankh Pork, if he hadn't made that choice, kind of brings that home of, like, the real horrors never really got a chance to start because they did something. Right. They being, I mean, like, everybody, like, Vimes and the Watch and, like, Veterinari went and went and was, and was doing Veterinari things. But the fact, like, if, like, if those people hadn't done anything, if Vimes hadn't done anything, or if you just, quote unquote, try to make the best of it, which is a thing we've heard so often uh, in the past two years, it doesn't work. It doesn't work the way you, you want it to, because, like you said, you are ignoring the pebbles that that signal the avalanche and if you don't move out of the way you're gonna get crushed the same as everyone else all right robots that is everything we have for you today we hope you enjoyed this episode if you did you should like rate review whatever at us on tumblr or twitter but uh, the next thing in our remedial read-along will come at some undisclosed date as <laughs> Rachel <laughs> continues to read the Discworld series in publication order. Uh, crazy thing. But next time, we're gonna do Riverdale. Mm-hmm. At least the first season. We're gonna see how far I get in watching it. Uh so if if I make it through the second season, we might talk about that too. Uh, and then after that, we're going to do the Adventure Zone balance arc. So it will be the first time that we've done a podcast, right? Oh my god, it will be. Right, so... Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> we're crossing those boundaries every day here on Remedial Studies. <laughs> so we look forward to uh, putting that on for you, and we hope that you will come join us and listen to us again. Uh, Rachel, would you like to tell the good, good robots our social media details? Oh, I would love to. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Remedial Studies. There you can watch us interact with our three fans and also tweet about things that we're into right now and try to make jokes. Uh, or you could follow us uh, at Remedial Studies Podcast um, com. I cross post all of our episodes there. Occasionally I remember to reblog things. Uh, we also cross post. Hopefully we can start doing this a bit more uh, once my semester winds down. We've been cross-posting blog posts there. Also, you can email us, remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. 
We our inbox is very lonely. Please feed it. And we are also on Instagram at Remedial Studies as well. We've actually had several people follow us on Instagram, like podcast Instagrams, but like I'm all about that networking. Mm-hmm. So I believe, yep, that's all of our socials. Is it time to say goodbye, robots? Well, Hannah thinks it's time to say goodbye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Well, goodbye, robots. Bye, robots. <laughs>